This is an ABC podcast. And welcome to this Radio National Summer Edition of The Screen Show. Jason DeRosso with you. Uh, Today we're bringing you more highlights from the last 12 months. It is in fact our last show of the summer season. We'll be back with fresh new content from next week. But we are going out with some wonderful highlights. uh, Grouped around a theme as uh, we've been doing every week here on The Screen Show. This week the theme is contemporary Arabic cinema. And I'm going to reintroduce you to filmmakers from Palestine, Morocco. And first up... Tunisia. You're about to meet the Tunisian director Mehdi Barsawi, whose film is a marriage story that's also set in the early days of the Arab Spring. Tunisia was the country where that wave of change kicked off, and in his film, which is called Asan, a cosmopolitan, secular and wealthy couple are heading off on holiday to the south of the country when the road is attacked by Islamic militants, and before they can reverse their land cruiser out of the ambush, their young son is gravely wounded by a stray bullet. He will need an organ transplant. And the couple, who are played with a very high-level intensity by Sami Bouajila and Naja Ben Abdallah, will have to make some very tough bedside decisions at the small regional hospital where they take their son. The film is a widescreen realist drama of visceral emotions, reminiscent of Asghar Fahadi's A Separation, which you might remember was also about a marriage and escalating tensions, bureaucratic obstacles and layers of backstory. One of those layers of backstory in this film includes an early revelation that the husband is not the boy's biological father. Big questions cascade from here. How hard will it be for this man to cope with this revelation? Can the marriage survive? And what moral dilemmas will arise in a life or death situation where solutions on a medical black market exist for a price? You might remember that at this time, neighbouring Libya was descending into chaos. And in this film, it seems that anything is possible across the border. Writer-director Mekdi Barsawi is coming up. نجم ندبروا العزيز كبده جديده وتخليوا هذا الكل وراكم. تتمنيك عليا. Well, Mehdi Barsawi, welcome to the Screen Show. Thank you for having me. Tell me, who are these people? Who is this couple in this film that you have written and directed? How does their appearance and their way of talking communicate to an audience who they are and what they represent? Uh, so um, they are a family, a Tunisian family living uh, in Tunis. Uh, let's say that they are pretty rich, they love each other, and uh, we are in a, how can I say, in a perfect Tunisia, in a perfect time, in a perfect summer, everything is perfect, and we will discover that uh, under the skin, uh, everything is not perfect. Is the political backdrop unfolding in the film, the the political backdrop of 2011, um, mm-hmm. The fall of Gaddafi's Libya, the months just after the Tunisian revolution. Is this 
a way of talking about their position in this world socioeconomically. I mean, they are they represent a particular set of socioeconomic uh, factors, mm-hmm. don't they? This couple. Uh, in a way, yes, because um, we are in 2011. We are seven months after the fall of Tunisian uh, of the, the, the ex-president Ben Ali regime, and uh, we are four weeks before Gaddafi, let's say, murder. So uh, it's a turmoil in this region and in this area. And talking about the revolution directly. Um, I wasn't interested in talking in a direct way because I think, first of all, I think that I, I don't have, uh, let's say, all the elements because I'm not a sociologue, or I'm not politologue, so I only can give my artistic interpretation as an artist of what happened here in Tunisia. But I wanted this couple to to dive in a reality they, that they was ignoring. Yes. So it's uh, it's uh, how can I say it's a description of this area of what we were living in this uh, in September and October 2011 and what uh, I'm very excited of is now the film being released in Australia it will give some uh, another point of view you know because for us, let me be honest, for us here in Tunisia, Australia is another dimension, it's another world, it's another planet. It's so far that we can we cannot identify. So I'm very happy to see a part of Tunisia being uh, shown in Australia. Well, it's interesting. There is an Australian link here. You're, one of your producers actually worked on a film called Slam, which was set in Sydney. Yeah. Yeah, it's Marc Irmer. It's our French co-producer because the film is a co-production between Tunisia, French, uh, France, uh, Qatar and uh, Lebanon, uh, Egypt also. And uh, that's the power uh, of cinema, you know, to have a summary view of Tunisia in another part of the world in Australia. It's fantastic. Well, and Slam, of course, for those who don't remember me talking about it on this show, was also a film that dealt with, well, it's a film that dealt with race and class uh, in the way that your film does. Um, Your film is called A Son. Now, I want to talk about the uh, fact that this couple end up after this disaster that happens and their son is gravely ill and needs a transplant. They end up in a regional hospital. What's important, what was important for you as writer-director that that this very well-to-do couple uh, working in a very cosmopolitan and international kind of sector of the economy... Uh, end up in this regional hospital? Uh, yeah, the idea was to destabilize uh, this couple because they are, as I said earlier, they are rich. It's the perfect family in a perfect Tunisia. And uh, after this disaster, they will discover a part of a reality that they were ignoring, a reality, uh, let's say, an economic reality, a social ec- uh, reality, Uh, they will almost discover themselves, you know, they will discover their country, they will discover the area that uh, they are living in. And I know the word in French, it's a remise en question. It's, uh, they will be really destabilized and uh, they will try to deal with this kind of issues to discover themselves. Mm. I mean, the, the couple is obviously quite secular. 
and it strikes me that this part of Tunisia, um, at least judging from the way people dress, seems to be more religious. Would that be a fair, a fair description of of where they are? And yet, by me describing it in such ambiguous ways, I think listeners can understand that this isn't a film that has any uh, sort of didactic point to make about religion or mm. secularism either. But there is that textual difference here in the people we're yes. seeing. Uh, yeah. Uh, the, the first thing we discover when they enter the hospital is their difference, you know, how uh, they are wearing, what they are wearing. And we see uh, since the first shot in the hospital that uh, this different can be judged, you know, even uh, how Mariam is wearing his dress because it's a dress and in Tunisia uh, going to a, pub a public hospital, we do not hear dresses, you know. So we understand directly that there is a difference between this couple and uh, the, the, the environment uh, around them. And uh, yes, Tunisia is very secular, but there is a lot of Tunisians in, in the same country, you know. Uh, I think that that's our particularity. Uh, we are all living together. And that's also the, the main idea of the film, that um, different Tunisians are possible. And the most important thing is to not judge, you know, before to know the people. I think that my country needs it right now. To, and it's a message of tolerance, of accepting each other, you know. Yeah, that being said, it's a film that presents a very stark uh, reality about the kind of racial hierarchies in North Africa especially, and I won't reveal a spoiler about the film, but it's quite critical of that. I'm wondering if that was part of the, the genesis of what you wanted to explore in this film, that degree of prejudice and intolerance that you wanted somehow to bring to light via this very personal disaster. Yeah, absolutely. The main idea was uh, to deal with fatherhood issues, with families, a fa family issue. But yeah, what was important for me and for my local audience, and I'm very happy that there is some universality of the film because the film have been shown in the all part of the world. And I'm, I'm very happy now for the Australian release. But the starting point was how can we be an Arab man, modern and living uh, and aspiring for tolerance, you know? Mm. I mean, I, I'm I, key to this if you're, is your exploration of gender as well. And, and, and it's a very interesting exploration of gender because what's put into question is the status of the father very early on in this film. Um, there's a kind of bombshell moment where there's a revelation about mm. uh, the paternity of this child and suddenly the relationship between this husband and wife is very much destabilized by this bombshell, the, the, the news that he may not be the father. Was this a question you wanted to pose mainly about masculinity in Tunisia or was it a question in a sense you wanted to pose also about, well, about both genders in a way? Yeah, both. Uh, let me be honest. It's both because uh, we cannot talk about masculinity without talking about uh, also the part of women in the in the uh, in our culture. Because let's be honest, the Tunisian women were 
were and are uh, right now, they have the most advanced uh, status in the Arab uh, region. You most know, advanced. Every, yeah, advanced. Yep. Yes, mm-hmm. absolutely. And uh, sorry for my English. No, 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 no. <laughs> Your English is better than my French uh, or Arabic. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yes, we are talking about men. We are talking about women. We are talking about the place of men and women in the society. And uh, I think that we cannot be uh, a modern society uh, if women uh, don't have the entire place that Uh, in the society that they uh, deserve, you know. Mm. So it was very important for me. Uh, I, I don't want to spoil the film, but in the end, uh, it's a detail, but it was very important for me. Uh, she is the one to sign the form, you know. Mm. I think mm. that you see what I mean. Yeah. And it was important for me because this father will discover that... Um, He will feel guilty, but he will understand that without his wife, without this woman, he's nothing, you know. And it's also a film about love. It's a story of love between a man and a woman. They will lose each other uh, in a certain point and uh, they will deal to find themselves in the film. I'm talking to uh, Mehdi Barsawi, who is the writer-director of uh, the Tunisian film uh, A Son. And it is a film about a family facing a terrible crisis when uh, they're involved in a, a terrorist attack by Islamic extremists uh, while heading out on holiday on a highway and their son is uh, almost mortally wounded, uh, needs a transplant, and so begins this drama. It plays a little bit, Mehdi, as a... As a thriller, I have to, I have to say, I'm wondering if when you were writing this, you conceived of it as a thriller, even though the themes are kind of typical family drama, melodrama uh, even. It plays like a, well, a race against time for obvious reasons. And, and you've really, I think, accentuated that. It's quite a thrilling watch. Yeah, uh, absolutely. It's uh, <clears throat> it's a race uh, against uh, against time. And uh, in the beginning, when I was writing the script, uh, I didn't want to give uh, a genre. You know, genre, uh, yeah. I wasn't uh, there to to tell myself, yes, I want to do a thriller, a thriller, and I want it with all the suspense. And no, it wasn't like that. The, the I think that the, the rhythm of the script. Uh, this man and this woman, this father and this uh, this mother, dealing with the to save the 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 life of their son was the line, you know, of mm. the script. And I think that the rhythm was natural, you know. Mm-hmm. And I think that with the actor there, with the actor and then uh, with the actors and with Antoine Berlet, the director of the photography, because I wanted a visceral and organic uh, mise en scène to dive into the. Um, w- to dive with the with these characters to try to understand them and to be very close uh, to what they are feeling and what they are dealing with the idea wasn't a thriller but we discovered the first version when my co-producer when my producers saw the first version of the film they told me oh wow we have a thriller now well yeah because it's also a, a script based on escalations 
uh, yes. further complications and things that escalate and things that trigger other things. And so, I, yeah, it has that kind of logic, which is which is very pleasing to watch. I'm interested that you mentioned Antoine Herbelet, the cinematographer. Um, I was interested to see that he's been a cinematographer on at least two Arabic language films, both Palestinian films, Wajib, which came out a couple of years ago, a great kind of Nazareth-based, very dry comedy um, and Paradise Now, of course, that that very important film that came out now, well, maybe almost two decades ago. It, was that a connection in some way to you? Uh, was there a connection via his links to Arab speaking, an Arab speaking filmmaking community, or or is um, that just? Am I drawing a connection that's not there? Uh, let me be honest. No, there is no connection. Um, and I think that Antoine doesn't have a con- doesn't have a connection with the Arab world. But uh, I saw Paradise Now. I think in two thousand and three or two thousand and four, and I I love this film. It's a Hany Abu Assad film. I think that it won the Golden Globe also or the Oscar. Mm. I'm not sure uh, of the foreign film. And uh, I was in love with the cinematography of the film. What did you like about the cinematography of the film? What what struck uh, you? It everything. It wasn't artificial. Uh, everything was really um, real. You know, I I didn't feel the cinematographer behind the behind the camera. It everything was organic. Everything was real. Everything was quite natural. And I was really in love with the cinematography. And uh, so the first, uh, when I was, when we were in pre-production, pre-production on Osan, uh, I told my producers to to talk with Antoine to see if he's available. And we sent uh, the script and he was in love with the script. And that's how Antoine uh, went in on the project. Mm. This film, Asan, is set in the months after an event, the Tunisian Revolution, which really, in some, a lot of historians agree that um, sparked what came to be known as the Arab Spring. Looking back now, mm. almost 10 years later, what, what are your thoughts on the Arab Spring? Um, are you disappointed? Do you think it's lived up to uh, the hope that, that, that sprung in those early months? If I have to be honest, I'm very optimistic. 2011 was a very important year for us, and not only for us, for the Arab world, for the Arab region, and I think that it's the best thing that happened to us, uh, because now, if even if it's quite hard, even it's getting harder day after day with the economic situation and now with this pandemic, but I'm sure that it's the best thing happened to us because now we are free. And being free, I think it's being free to think, being free to create, being free to do whatever we want. I think that it's the most important thing and we can now build on it, you know. You say that as a Tunisian, though. I'm wondering when you look across the the region, especially in North Africa, do you think you'd say that as a Libyan? No, uh, I think that the situation in Libya, the situation in Egypt, in Syria is quite different. Mm. Uh, and your film, of that, course, I should point out, your film does take place, you know, in that border region with Libya, which is yes. why I mention it. Yeah, yeah, it was important because there, there is, <clears throat> let's say, the Libyan part of the film, but it's not. The idea wasn't to to talk about this political or uh, or um, geopolitical uh, issue. The idea was that, that this man uh, will 
after after this disaster, uh, maybe part of the solution will be in Libya. I don't want to spoil uh, mm. the film, but and it's let's say um, my contribution to talk about this. You know what's happening here and with all this traffic, the the organ traffic that unfortunately does exist. But the idea was even with the end, it's a very optimistic film and. You know, it's an, um, a parallel between this love story and this country, Tunisia, my country. Even if it's very hard sometime, I think that we will get through this. Are there still bands of Islamist militants uh, roaming around the remote parts of Tunisia that, that perform these kinds of attacks, the attacks that we see at the beginning of this film? Uh, unfortunately, yes, but let me say that everything around the globe is like that. You know, we have unfortunately some fanatic and some extremist uh, people, and uh, we are we are dealing with it. Even if our last attack was two or three years ago, hopefully it will stay like that. But uh, we are also doing films, you know, to try to change mentalities and to try to move on. Hopefully it will, it will stop all around the world. writer-director Mekdi Barsawi. His film, A Son, is available to rent or buy on streaming platforms. You're listening to a Radio National Summer Edition of The Screen Show with me, Jason DeRosso. And today's theme is contemporary Arabic cinema. Next up, we head to Morocco and a film about friendship and motherhood set in the Medina of Casablanca with its narrow, whitewashed alleyways. It stars the half-Moroccan, half-Belgian actor Lubna Adzabal as a widow named Abla, a serious and emotionally reserved woman who lives with her young daughter, Varda, who's named after the legendary Arabic pop diva. Abla operates a hole-in-the-wall bakery from her home, and one night, her life changes after she opens her door to a young, pregnant woman, played by Nisrini Eradi, who is sleeping rough. The film is called Adam, and it premiered in a certain regard in Cannes in 2019. Its two lead performances are powerfully subtle and prove just how much a filmmaker and her ensemble can communicate via glances and wordless gestures. Coming up, writer-director of Adam, Mariam Tuzani. Mariam Tuzani, welcome to The Screen Show. Thank you, Jason. Tell me about this story, uh, the real-life story that inspired this film. Well, Adam was inspired by a a real-life character, uh, by a woman who came knocking on my parents' door when I had just moved back from university. And um, she was eight months pregnant and uh, 
was literally on the streets. She had absolutely nowhere to go because um, she had fled her home months before. Her parents didn't know that she was pregnant. Nobody knew, actually. And she ended up in, in my hometown looking for somebody to take her in because she wanted to give birth to this child and be able to give it away in order to go back to the city that she had come from, to her village, actually, and uh, restart anew. She, she ended up on our doorstep, uh, knocked on our door, and my parents felt they could not let her go back on the streets alone because they were scared for her. They were scared for this child that she was going to bring to the world. And they decided to, to take her in for a few days in order to try to help her find, find a solution. And these few days basically transformed into a few weeks because they, there was really nothing they could do apart from, from, from help her by keeping her with us, by keeping her safe. So I, I experienced the whole part, last part of her pregnancy with her uh, until the moment she gave birth and, uh, and went to give her child up for adoption. And I, I went with her to do that. How old were you? I was 23. Okay. I just moved back from university. And at 23, yeah, what sort of 23-year-old were you? Because I imagine, I mean, that would be quite a eye-opening experience, I imagine. Absolutely. It was a very, very intense experience. I mean, when you're 23, you're obviously mature enough to understand a lot of things. So, I mean, I, this was a very, very intense experience for me because, I mean, I literally saw a young woman become a mother in front of my eyes. And I saw this young woman trying to stifle her emotions because stifle her love for her child, to keep herself from loving this child that she was bearing and keep herself from loving this child once she brought him to the world because she knew that she was not allowed to keep him. Uh, and it was very, uh, very heart-wrenching for me to, to see what this woman had gone through. Did your parents also own a bakery? Not at all. Not at all. My parents didn't own a bakery at all. Okay. Okay. It was just, it's inspired by her character, but yes. I mean, I'm, I, I go from her character to actually create another story, which is very close to things that I had experienced as well. Well, tell me about this, this transposition, because you've, you set this story in the Medina of Casablanca, mm -hmm. this beautiful historic center of the city. It's a very pared down, almost minimalist character study because it really involves three main characters. It's these two women and this young girl. So your, if you like, your surrogate is almost, you know, you could, you might call her a surrogate, but she's, she's here transformed to what seems to be a sort of eight-year-old girl. And so much of the film's meaning and drama, it strikes me, and it's the beautiful, one of the beautiful elements of your film is communicated by the way the characters look at each other. Mm -hmm. Tell me about tell me about that approach. I mean, I really wanted to rid myself of everything that I deemed to be superfluous. Uh, for me, it was very important that this film is anchored in the context that it is anchored in, which is a very conservative context. But at the same time, this society, which is the society that's making the lives of, the, of these two women so hard, uh, I wanted to keep outside. So I wanted to be able to concentrate mainly on, on, on these two women's evolution and this child and their transformation throughout the film. That's why I really decided to cut myself off from the outside world, only going out when I thought it was necessary to, to understand the concept context or because it brought something uh, extra to, to, to my character. So it was really about getting as up close and, and intimate as I could with these women in order to be able to, to, to really follow their inner transformation and, and see how they evolve. Because it's really about how these two women evolve inside this house with this little girl in the middle and how they're going to help each other face their own fears 
uh, how they're going to put each other face to face with their own truths. And for that, I really needed to be uh, cut off from the outside world once again. And I mean, there is there is this window towards the world because we are obviously in a bakery and there is a street outside and you, you get a taste of the Medina and we do go out in the Medina once in a while. But at the same time, once the, this uh, shutter is closed, because this woman opens and closes her store every day, yeah. once it's closed, we're really inside with them in their house, but we're really in their inside as well. That's why it was also shut uh, very intimately with very with a lot of close-ups uh, the way it was shot also for me played a, a, an essential role in being able to tell who these women really are well tell me more about this i mean this dramatic vocabulary of expressions and glances and non-verbal communication was that something that was there in the script from the beginning or did it expand further once you'd cast the film and you realized the power of these two wonderful performers it was actually there from the very start. I had written, I had imagined the, the film this way. I had not imagined the film with a lot of action. I had imagined the film with a lot of interior action. I imagined the film where the, um, like you were saying, you know, a lot of things are, are communicated. A lot of things are transmitted through the through the way the characters look at each other, through the way the characters look at themselves, through their relationship to their bodies, to this uh, to this dough that they need as well, to their like wood ablets, through the, the the pastries that she makes. Um, for me, uh, I wanted words, I wanted dialogue to be secondary. I mean, it is there, it has an essential part in understanding who they are, but it's also, it's only there to bring an extra light into who these characters are. I mean, I wanted them to be able to express themselves without words. I wanted us to, to be able to, it's like when you're reading a, a, a novel and, and you're inside the character's mind, basically, and you don't need dialogue. You don't need him to say things. You're inside his head, so you're reading who they are, but you don't need him to come out and say it in a, in a, in a sentence to somebody else. I just really wanted to have that kind of, um, that kind of relationship to the characters. And tell me more about the way that you chose to shoot this. I mean, I noticed that your cinematographer, uh, Virginia Surjesh, if I'm pronouncing it right, has shot a lot of documentary before. And you, of course, have a background as a journalist and then a documentary maker. Tell me about your approach together. Well, uh, Virginia and I had, had really the same vision. She really helped me materialize the way I had imagined to, to tell the story. And it was absolutely wonderful working with her. And in, in Adam, there was a real, uh, there was a real uh, reflection about the way uh, light was going to be used, about the way color was going to be used, about the, the way everything was going to be framed, about the kind of shots we were going to we were going to use as well. And it was once again always about being able to get as close as possible to the characters, being as intimate as possible, trying to somehow erase the distance between between the camera, between the viewer and and the and the characters, and also just really being able to place the camera sometimes. A little bit externally, so we have so that we could look into the lives of these women, but other times just be, to be able to be really under their skin, and um, and for that there was a lot of a lot of thought um, that we gave that we gave at Virginie and me to be able to shoot the film in that manner. And yes, like you said, Virginie has shot a lot of the documentaries. She has shot a lot of fiction as well, though. There was a clear uh, a clear un an understanding about the outside as well because. It, the outside scenes are shot in a certain manner. Always, I mean, we're in a, another rhythm, basically, yeah. than when we are inside, uh, which is a little bit more of a documentary kind of style, maybe we can call that, when you're in the outside, in the, in the, in the Medina. But when we're on the inside, we are in frames that are a lot more stable, a lot more... Um, 
it's more controlled, Close. isn't it? And sort of composed, yeah. perhaps. Exactly, it is. It is, and and I mean, the light was was essential. I mean, the, tell the, me about the, the light. light. Yes, tell me about the yeah. light because I presumably, I mean, this is an actual house, right? So it's not a set. So this is an actual historic house in the Medina. Um, yeah. I mean, how much were you able to control your circumstances, and and how much was this? Well, presumably you're using a lot of lights kind of streaming in, but are you also timing shots for different part times of the day for when the sun was going to be at a certain position and, and coming through a window at a certain angle? Of course, of course, definitely, yes, because we, I mean, th these are all things that we had to work our, our way around, like you said, because we're not in this, we're, we're in a natural setting. This is the house that I really wanted to shoot in, and basically we had to accommodate ourselves to, to, to the neighborhood and to the shooting hours as well, obviously, to, to have the light that we wanted when we wanted it. It was very, um, very rewarding to be able to do that with Virginie as well because she's she's absolutely, absolutely amazing and working hand in hand with her. Uh, did you need? Was did, wonderful. Do you need permits in the? I mean, I guess presumably oh. you you had permits, but I mean, how how much were you able to control the Medina, or would, did the Medina just circulate around you in terms of the people on the street and so forth? That's a very good question. The Medina is uh, is one of the places I, I love the most about Casablanca because it's extremely, extremely uh, en vie. It's a place that is, uh, it's very hard to control. Like yeah. the Medina really controls you, you know. Uh, I spent a lot of time in the Medina with my uh, short films. I spent a lot of time in the Medina with the documentaries and it's a place I absolutely, I'm in love with because it's so rich in, ev in, in every way. But sometimes it is too rich because there is a lot of noise, because there is a, a lot of activity, a lot of things happening everywhere. So yes, it's, it's, a, it's a real challenge to shoot in the Medina. And in the Medina, it's also about being accepted in the Medina by, by, by the people that are around you because you, become, you come to be part of that Medina for a few months while you're preparing, while you're shooting. But because I was so close to, to the Medina and to the people that lived in the Medina, I think that, you know, um, I think that helped because I understood the way the Medina functioned, I think. Just putting into context the house, for example, I mean, how did you find a house that was empty in the middle of the Medina where you could shoot a film? There, the house wasn't actually empty. There was there was people living in it, but there, they, they moved to another to another floor because they had a few floors in the house. So they uh -huh. could actually move to another floor in the house. But uh, finding the house in the Medina was one of the most complex things because it was very hard. I had really imagined what I wanted. Uh, I mean, it was very written the way this film was going to evolve. The, the, the house is an actual character in the film. It is one of the central characters in the film. What's well, a so, beautiful house with beautiful sort of tiles and these high ceilings and these internal doors with with glass that open and shut. And yeah, it's an absolute delight of a set. Yeah, it's a house that really has a soul to it. It really has a soul. You feel it in the walls. You, mm. you know, you don't walk in there and not feel anything. You can't. But we did work. I mean, the, the house was there. But then with a, I mean, with with a set designer, we changed everything. Basically, I mean, yes, the tiles were there. Yes, the windows were there. But we then we gave. You know, we changed everything because I was very like concretely with the color that I wanted, with the uh, with the materials that I wanted. I mean, it was very concrete in my head. That's obviously affected by light. I mean, what color palette were you thinking of? For, I mean, were you thinking in terms of, in symbolic terms when it came to the color of not only the production design elements, but also the light? I was thinking a lot of, uh, in, in emotional terms, honestly. Uh -huh. I mean, I, was, I let 
my my emotions speak and what I considered would be the character's emotions speak in certain scenes. So it was it was a lot about trying to make uh, like once again with Pilar Peredo the 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 house the colors the textures accompany the light the way the light is going to evolve as well as the costumes because there was a lot a lot of work as well on the on the costumes and the colors used and how this whole was going to to really accompany the evolution of these characters inside this house uh, because when you're in a um, closed space because I mean of course in Adam there is a few times when we go outside the house but the essential of the action takes place between this house and this bakery it was it was really about having light uh, and color uh, work together uh, what colors in, what colors in particular oh for for me it was warm colors it was like mm. I'm, I'm, i realized how inspired i had been and that was only when i started actually putting you know the images on paper when i started really realizing how inspired i had been by painters like uh, like vermeer uh, de la tour uh, caravaggio uh, you know all the clair obscure i mean these are these are painters that i've always you know, admired through, throughout my life, and and I and I realized how the imprint all, all these works of art had in my way of seeing things, and yeah. later in translating them into into the image. I mean, it was it was a, an interesting uh, journey for me as well, uh, inward journey to discover. I mean, all these things that come influence you during your life, and you're not even conscious of it, and you only realize when you see how they find a form of expression through you and through what you actually do. Mariam, you mentioned earlier that this was also thematically a very important film about women who find themselves in this situation. One's a widow with a young daughter. One is uh, a young woman uh, heavily pregnant. And it's a situation where they face a very conservative society. I just wanted you to qualify that. Were you talking about Moroccan society generally as being conservative or were you talking about the particular community that finds itself in this part, this historic part of Casablanca? No, it's, I mean, Moroccan society in general is quite conservative. Morocco is a very exciting country because it is a country of contradictions and of oppositions. And it's true that you have uh, parts of the Moroccan society that can be extremely modern, uh, but then the majority of Moroccan society is quite conservative. And even in the modern parts of the society, you still find contradictions uh, where you can be very modern on certain aspects of your life and very conservative in other aspects. I mean, we can suffer a lot from this. Women in the situation of uh, of uh, Samia in the film uh, that are pregnant out of wedlock, I mean, yes, Samia does come from a part of the society that is very conservative. But if you take the same woman and, I mean, you can you go to a part of the society that's uh, more, more open. A woman today with a pregnancy out of wedlock, even in a very modern part of the society, will not be able to keep her child. I don't know of any young woman, uh, or, or not young either, I mean, even if she's independent, even if she's uh, educated, I don't know of any, of any woman that accepts to, to be uh, pregnant out of wedlock because the social pressure is extremely, extremely hard. Uh, and that's throughout the society. It's not only in certain backgrounds. Writer-director Mariam Tuzani. Look out for her film Adam on streaming platforms. You're listening to a special Radio National summer edition of The Screen Show, dedicated this week to contemporary Arabic cinema. My name's Jason DeRosso. <laughs> As a performer who appears in his own films, 
the Palestinian director Elia Suleiman has a deadpan presence. That's usually in stark contrast to a world that's chaotic or confusing, or full of paradoxes. Usually, that world is Nazareth. His previous three films have been set in and around the city. But in his elegant, inventive latest film, It Must Be Heaven, the world around him extends to Paris and New York, where once again he's playing a version of himself, a director, travelling to gather support for a film project. But in between the meetings and official appearances, he spends time observing the cities he visits, and his eye for visual gags and carefully framed urban landscapes zeroes in on all sorts of poignant street-level interactions that reveal who goes where, who's not welcome, and who is policed. You'll meet Elia Suleiman after this clip. What country do you come from? Nazareth. Uh-uh. Nazareth. Nazareth. Nazareth, is that a country? I'm Palestinian. Palestinian? Goodness gracious, let me look at you. I've never seen a Palestinian. Palestinian inside of my cab, isn't that something? Carafet, right? I love Carafet, he's my man. Oh, brother. Goodness gracious. Well, guess what? This ride is on me. Elias Suleiman, welcome to The Screen Show. Well, thank you for having me. Tell me about this theme of travel in this particular film and what you wanted to explore with this kind of international travel? Because on one level, you might think, oh, this is a lighter, this is somehow thematically lighter. But of course, wherever you go, I mean, namely Paris and New York in this film, we see these recurring themes, in particular, the themes that you often explore around public space and policing and, I don't know, power, I suppose you could say, the, the articulation of power in public spaces and cities. Tell me about that. Well, you know, aside from trying to hint to post-colonial discourse in Palestinian this and Palestinian that, I think this is a film that also is talking about the Palestinianization of the globe, basically. And it, it just basically talks about this guy who finds Palestine trailing behind him wherever he goes. He finds pension uh, and state of exception, and he finds police, and he finds military, and he finds that there is a sort of a state of emergency kind of daily life. And it's basically to just describe the world we live in today, which is basically in a sort of a global violent state. And so it's really about what we are witnessing wherever we go today. I mean, there's not even a corner that we can go to where it has even any calm. And uh, and basically this is a film about what the state of things have become in the world today, so in, in a few words. But um, generally, I've, I've done it in a burlesque fashion and in, in sort of a, well, with sort of humor. Uh, but at the, at, the, at the core of it, it's really about wherever we go and whoever we are today, we are living in a state of tension. And was there some kind of uh, sense of hierarchy and pecking order that you wanted to express as well, even racially perhaps, in the way that this power discriminates uh, to different people on, according to this sort of socioeconomic level in cities like Paris or New York? Well, of course. I mean, basically, I, I sort of am based in Paris, so what I try to do here is to 
to make it bare bone. I emptied Paris and left it with only the homeless and the police chasing Arabs. And uh, in order to describe what the situation is like with racism and with, you know, the second class colored people and, you know, with all the injustice that is happening in the different parts of this world. So what I'm trying to explain is that what globalization has done is basically open borders all over the world, but only for consumerist goods while maintaining the injustices that shine in each and every country. That's basically what I was trying to describe. I mean, instead of open borders, we have today a lot more walls than we've ever seen before. So it's really to describe the state of things. I did notice that uh, Paris was incredibly sort of empty and almost ghost-like in this very stylized representation of the city. Um, and a, a small logistical question, which was probably considerable for you, for you in terms of your considerations, what time of day did you have to shoot Paris to get it like that? It was, it was sometimes early morning, but I can tell you that generally what happened is that I got all the support that anybody could get from the mayor's office. Basically, there is a man who sits in, in, the, in the mayor's office who gives the permissions, and he is just a person who loves cinema. So he just made it possible. So we did block all the center of Paris. He actually made it happen. I mean, you know, when we went to ask for permissions, you have to be extremely precise. This is a very difficult city to shoot in because of so much tourism. And I was actually advised in the beginning by the production to shoot outside of Paris because, you know, it's impossible with all the tourism, especially the, the locations that I chose that are primarily very, very, very center of Paris. So you have the Louvre, you have the Palais Royal, you have, you know, it, it's just Place de Victoire. It's all like areas where you normally you cannot even block, you know, one minute because of so much traffic and so much tourism. But somehow I just got full support. And uh, the thing is, there is a, there is something about also France and, and the cinematic culture that I think does not really exist anywhere else. Uh, when they like what you do and when they like the script, they just help. And uh, as long as it does not disturb too much the, you know, the flow of, traffic in the city. So we did shoot in a few places. Um, we had to do it, you know, for a limited amount of time. But then, you know, we did in, in quite various times during the day and we just blocked places, emptied. We had, you know, the police covering all the all the area and and it just was really, a, for me, a, a, a beautiful thing to happen. Uh, we even blocked the Louvre, which is... Uh, really was quite funny to do that. But then the Louvre also supported the film and they actually helped us do whatever we wanted. So really I was, I can say I can, I was very, very lucky. Well, I have to ask then how New York compared to, to Paris in that case. It was Montreal and not New York. Ah, yes. So I noticed that in the, uh, in the credits, of course. Well, it's a very, it's a very convincing, um, yeah, facsimile for New York actually. Yes. Well, how did that go? Uh, um, I have to say that it was tough. In Montreal, the union laws are pretty strict. And to find the locations that would look like New York, um, not in a cliche way, 
And, the, you know, I, normally some of the American films go there and they, you know, want to do like basically quite well-known places to the audience. And in my case, I wanted to shoot in some things that look like a Tribeca and that look like Laurie's side. And so it was harder to, to capture locations as such. And the permissions are hard to get. The production is, is really much more difficult, actually. Your films have these quite intricate moments of choreography. In this film, uh, It Must Be Heaven, there's a moment on a street in Paris where we see three cops chasing a guy and they're on segways, I think they're called. They're, these, they're gliding along on these very strange uh-huh. wheeled things. Um, and, but they glide along in such a way that and the camera is placed, from your point of view, from the hotel room window. And so we're seeing them from above. And at a certain point, as they're circling this parked car, it's a choreography that's, that reminds you of, I mean, classic Hollywood musicals almost. Um, and, you know, and, but, you know, there are other moments in your films where you, you throw a pip out of a, a car window and it explodes an Israeli tank. I mean, you know, there are other gags that are, if I can call them that, that are, that are quite spectacular, but they're all intricate. Is that also just meditation? Is that where you get the, you know, you come up with the inspiration for these, for these moments of choreography? Um, it all starts with a true experience moment in real life. Every single thing that you see in my film, I have some kind of semi-biographic background to it. Something does happen and then I note it in my notebook and it becomes the first, let's say, scratch, the first drawing of what potentially can become, uh, let's say, a tableau. So what I do is I start with something and then I start to dream it and imagine it. I, I do that for a long time. I'm talking about years now. Um, I use post-its on the wall. And basically, I spend a lot of time pigmenting every image, like if it was a tableau, like as if you are painting, but it's, it's more in the imagination. So I start to dream the choreography. I start to imagine how it could become this kind of dance of some sort. And then I, you know, on the set, I also, I mean, I rehearse this choreography that you saw, especially of the police. It's something that actually I rehearsed. I do, I do come out with it basically sitting on a chair for a long time and, and basically daydreaming it uh, before, before I go on the set. So, yes, it's uh, temporality is maybe in the essence of all of this. Rhythm is quite important. Um, in a gag, what is really essential is that the punchline is that one place and no other place. So you have to be very precise in that one. If you miss, miss that one place, then your gag does not work. So the punchline is extremely important. And you have to really, it's like a musicality of some sort that you have to you know, keep coming back to in order to precise it exactly so that the punchline works. So the gags are not an easy matter to achieve, I have to say. But when you have the, the very basic of it, then you know that something is going to come out of it. Just finally, I know many have asked you about this, but can you comment on the on-screen persona you, ha- you have and how you sort of came across this sweet spot, which is, again, reminiscent a little bit of Buster Keaton. I think people also mentioned Buster Keaton because um, he made so many, you know, silent, he, was, he was such a figure of silent cinema because, of course, you don't, you don't talk a lot in your films. Uh, I, I basically never did, yeah. except for the two words in this film. Yeah. 
So how, how did you come across that sweet spot for you? And what does it mean that you don't talk, that you look? Um, I mean, there's no strategy to speak of here. I think it started with my short film, the first short film. And really, it was an intuition that this is the way I was going. Um, when I also started to write dialogue, something told me that, you know, dialogue can hamper a little bit the, the, the spectator from watching the image. For me, cinema is about images. And so I tried to maximize uh, the potentiality of the image itself before I resort, if I have to resort to any kind of information. So, I mean, in fact, I sometimes I write dialogue and then I scratch it before I shoot because I um, I find it to be imposed in some way, a sort of reading that has linearity. And I prefer the spectator to to look at the image and somehow participate in the making of the image, look in different corners of it and try to make their own kind of association with the image. It's what I usually say when I say I like a democratic reading of an image. For my character, it, it just worked that way. I never strategized, I never planned it. Somehow I never even thought in the beginning that I would act in my own films, but then somehow it just felt like this was the right thing to do. And when it it started, it started with the acting also the same thing. I really never planned to act that way. And it just came naturally with the image and I picked up on it and I just continued to develop it. I think in the last film, I wouldn't say it was deadpan because as in my previous films, I was maybe much more distant and let's say more observing in this one. And uh, I think that the images kind of sucked my character in. I mean, in this one, I'm rather acting. Uh, I have quite a lot of reactions on my face. I'm, I'm emotionally engaged uh, visually. Um, I think in this film, I think the vulnerability of my character is much more evident. There is an, a person, a character who's emotionally being inflicted by what he is watching, which is different from my previous films. Filmmaker and actor Elia Suleiman do try and track down his wonderful film, It Must Be Heaven, on streaming platforms. That is it for another summer edition of The Screen Show here on Radio National. Our last summer edition, in fact, will be back with new content for you next week. I hope you enjoyed this focus on contemporary Arabic cinema. I do encourage you to look up all of the films along with It Must Be Heaven. Uh, today we also spoke about A Son by Mehdi Barsawi and Adam by Mariam Tuzani. All very much worth your time. I'm Jason DeRosso. I'll see you next week. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.